last few years of his, of his uh, high school and junior high years were in Grand Rapids. Peter is uh, Tim and Julie's middle child, and they are full of arms with children this morning, and they're so happy. Peter um, also says that he is blessed with a wonderful California girl named Kinsley. And so Kinsley is here with the whole family. It's great to have them there. Peter goes on to say, and together we have been blessed with three beautiful children, two sons and a daughter. Out of all that God has given me to do in life, there is nothing else in life I enjoy more than being a husband and a father. And today he got to play the father in a boat quite a bit, from what I understand, which is good. Peter has a PhD from Master's Seminary, I think 2017. His PhD dis dissertation, which was very forward-thinking at the time, is the law and homosexuality should Le Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 influence the church's understanding of homosexuality. And look where we are today. That's just a back thing <laughs> compared to what's going on now. In 2017, Peter became the associate pastor or professor, sorry, of Old Testament and biblical languages at Shepherd's Theological, Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. He also teaches the young adult ministry at Shepherd's Church. He runs a popular blog and podcast called The Bible Sojourner. I have this. You can turn the light off. Maybe people can see that. I have this. Uh, this is his webpage, and this is his book that he just came out. He recently wrote the baptism de debate, which how many of you are Minnesotans? Okay, a few of you. You all know that this is a debate. Just about anybody you talk to in this area or the surrounding areas. Why do children get baptized? What is the point of that? Uh, is pedo-baptism actually biblical? Uh, did Philippian jailer, well, he can probably tell you everything. The reality is, he then explains the presuppositions behind why infant baptism is so popular in Lutheranism here. And uh, it's how you view scripture. Do you view it hermeneutically how it's written? Or do you make it spiritual? Do you uh, covenantalize everything, if you will? And appreciate that book greatly. I think all of you should own that book because it will be a witness tool here in this city. I'm I guarantee you it will. Uh, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Lutherans are all baptizing infants, so... That is Peter in a nutshell, if you can actually put him there. But I would ask you, Peter, if you would treat us just like you do your class back at home. Your, uh, he's got a room upstairs. It's called the upper room, <laughs> where he teaches every Sunday to college and career. And last time I was there, you don't want to know the topic. <laughs> I never heard a sermon like that in my life. <laughs> Kinsley wasn't even there, if I remember right. 
But anyways, he does a great job at preaching the word, and uh, he loves those uh, his uh, the people that he ministers to there. And I pray that you will treat us just the same, Peter. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you so much for the kind words, the warm introduction. I will say that, uh, with regard to my book at least, uh, some of you may want to wait for the movie. It's not for everybody. Uh, <laughs> I say that just because I think there are like 100 footnotes per chapter or something like that. So it's one of those books that uh, kind of get lost in the weeds a little bit. But that's okay. You know what? Uh, I think, uh, obviously, I liked it, otherwise I wouldn't have, wouldn't have written it. Although I do plan, Lord willing, um, I plan on writing a, a more simplified version of it because it was ma ma mainly geared toward people who really wanted to not just examine it, but really test. Like My goal, basic, was writing to convince paedo-baptists that their system was unbiblical. So that's ba I basically wrote it to them. Uh, so I am, Lord willing, planning on having a more simplified version for just per somebody who wants to understand more about baptism. And Lord willing, if he gives me strength, uh, I'll do that. But I always enjoy being back to Minnesota, and I love the fact that my family is here, and it's the first time for uh, Benaiah and Micaiah to be here. Tobias doesn't remember the first time he came. He was pretty young, under two years old, but, but we love it back here. I love the church. I spent many uh, years here uh, from eighth grade, and then, well, eighth grade through high school, and then uh, even I came back uh, after, in between college uh, for summers and things like that, and so just really, really love the church here, uh, love uh, many of you, and many of you I've never seen before, so that's kind of fun to see new faces, and so I just always feel like a part of this church, even though I'm so, so far away, and a lot of that comes, comes because we are uh, bound in Christ together, and I'm just so thankful for that. It's I, I often tell people in North Carolina because we don't. My my wife and I, my wife's from California. I'm from here in Minnesota, and so we don't have any family nearby at all in North Carolina. But one of the things that I often tell people is is that, um, you know, in large degree, I I feel like those people who are part of our church and our lives there are closer than most of our families, just because they're our, our, uh, our body in Christ. They, they are the ones who support us. They come, they hold our hands when we cry, you know, they, they laugh with us, all those kinds of things. And so there's just a bond in Christ that is so sweet. And then all the sweeter when you get to have that bond with those who are part of your family as well. And so I'm just really glad to be back with all of you and hope that the Lord will do something special through the word today to uh, direct us. So let's, let's go before the Lord and ask him to open our hearts and our minds. Gracious Father, we thank you for giving us an opportunity to study your word together. I pray that you would allow us to have the full impact of your word working in our souls, allow us to have a true understanding of the passage set before us, and I pray that you would uh, just make us really excited and thankful for all that you're doing through Scripture and what you've promised to us through your word. In your name we pray, amen. Well, you can turn to Psalm 62, is where we will be at, Psalm 62. And while you're turning there, 
I assume most of you have probably heard, I think it was about three weeks ago, uh, about the, I don't know, they called it, Ocean, well, in fact, I think that's the name of the company, Ocean Gate and the Titan Submersible that went down to go visit the Titanic and didn't quite make it. And uh, it was a travesty on all uh, proportions. But it actually made me think of a different uh, submarine accident that occurred uh, in 1927. Some of you uh, don't remember that. Some of you, you know, were <laughs> not alive then. Uh, so 1927 in December, there was a submarine known as the S-4, and it was on a training exercise. And while it was surfacing off the coast of New Jersey, uh, another boat hit it, and so it sunk. And it sunk, but it was, uh, you know, far enough, or it was close enough to the shore, it wasn't that deep, and, and so uh, the crew was trapped inside, and so, you know, uh, rescue workers flocked to the area. They had divers going down trying to attach an oxygen hose to the submarine to try to help the crew survive while there was uh, a storm approaching as well. And so uh, as, as the divers were there trying to attach this oxygen hose, you know, one of the divers was listening to the, to the hose, to the, um, I don't even know what you call the side of the submarine, but listening to the to the side there of the submarine, and he heard a little rapping coming through the submarine. And so, you know, this is beyond my pay grade. Some of you would probably even know Morse code, but, you know, they were using Morse code to communicate, and those inside the submarine were, were asking a question through Morse code. And the question was, it was coming across in the dots and dashes, and it was, it was is there any hope? Is there any hope? Now, unfortunately, the storm came and the crew was unable to attach the oxygen hose and the entire crew died. But in that travesty, we actually get a glimpse of what we all experience every day. We all ask a question about if there is any hope in our lives. And we sang some songs about that this morning as well. Now, although the, the scene of the S-4 dying, and that, that ended up, I think at the time, that was the largest uh, submarine accident that had taken place, at least for the United States, uh, in losing the, the whole crew of the S-4. But as we think about life, generally, I think we all go through different seasons of life or, or occasions where we ask that question. We ask, is there any hope? I mean, some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have, uh, some of us have gone through sickness. Uh, some of us have gone through crazy trials that we would not wish on our enemies. Some of us have experienced the death of loved ones. Going through those kinds of circumstances, it makes us ask that. Is there any hope? Now, in order to understand exactly how we can have hope, I think we need to define it, right? We have to know for what we are asking. And Psalm 62, as well as other passages in Scripture, talk a lot about hope, but we need to talk about what it isn't and what it is, and then we can understand if we can get it, right? And so, first, let, let's do a negative definition about what it is not, okay? 
So what hope is not in scriptural definition and language is basically how we use hope all the time. All right. So uh, what I mean by that is we often talk this way. I hope the weather is nice today. I hope that my team wins today. I hope that the barbecue sauce is excellent for lunch. You know, all those things, we use language that way. But if you are going to use that language around a biblical author, like David, for example, who's the author of Psalm 62, if you were to use the language that way, he would look at you thinking, you are crazy. Like, that is not what hope is. Hope is not a wish, which is how we often express it. But what is hope then? See, in biblical terminology, hope is a confident expectation of something that is going to happen. In fact, uh, if you look at how it's used, even in this psalm, but uh, elsewhere in the New Testament and, and various places, you'll see hope is often used in parallel with another term, waiting. Hope and waiting are often used synonymously. So if we are waiting for the Lord, for example, and his return, does that mean we're hoping that he'll come back? I, I wish that he would come back. No, that's different. That's different. We are waiting for the Lord to return, and we are hoping that he will return in the sense that we are expecting and confident that he will return. That's the biblical terminology of hope. So when you think about hope, it's essentially without exception, it's an expectation, a confidence that something is going to take place. And so in Scripture, hope in God is presented as a confident expectation of God's intervention in some way. So in other words, it's not just a prayer or a wish, but it's an expectation. It's a confidence that God will intervene in this situation. Now, it's not just, as we'll find out in this psalm in particular, it's not just that everything will turn out okay in the end, it's that even in the present, in the now, God has his hands here. He is intervening in a way that will work. So Psalm 62 in particular, when we're going to look at this, we're going to, uh, we're going to discuss and look at this theme of hope. The, when, when, you, when you read Old Testament scholars on Psalm 62, they, they tend to classify psalms in different ways. You have psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of of blessing, all these different uh, classifications. Usually they classify this as a psalm of confidence. Psalm 62 would be described as a psalm of confidence because when David's writing the psalm, he's writing with a firm confidence in God as his hope. And this, this confidence doesn't exist in positive circumstances. It's not as if David just you know won the lottery or he just... Uh, it's not as if David... Uh, you know, he just got married or he just, you know, won a great battle or anything like that. It's not as if things are going well for David. Things are actually going very poorly, as we can tell in verses 3 and 4. He's going through difficulties, and yet, in the midst of that difficulty, he has that confidence. And that's one of the greatest applications for us today. When we, when we look through this psalm, we understand that we can have hope, just like David did, even when we are in, and I would say, nay, especially when, we are in difficult situations. I look around, obviously, like I said, we haven't been in Minnesota for very long. We live in North Carolina, so I don't know many of your circumstances. 
but I can almost guarantee, given the fact that you are a human being, that you have some difficulties. There are some uncertainties. There are, there are some trials in your life. And hope does exist, especially in those scenarios, in those situations. And so when we look at the outline of this psalm, there's basically three points. Uh, so I'll give them to you, and then we'll go through them as we go through. Uh, so the first one is that David's confidence is in the midst of trouble. That's verses 1 to 4. Then we see David's exhortation to himself and fellow believers in verses 5 to 8. And then we see David's warning, which is to trust in nothing but God alone. And that's verses 9 through 12. So David's confidence, 1 to 4. David's exhortation in 5 to 8. And then David's warning in 9 to 12. All right, so that's basically how the psalm breaks up. And we're going to explore those uh, piece by piece, bit by bit or at least until half of you fall asleep. That's, that's our goal. All right, so verse 1 uh, begins David's confidence in the midst of trouble. So here's his, his statement. This is kind of the thesis of the whole psalm. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. So verse 1, you see the statement of confidence that, that, I, that I wait. This is David speaking. I wait for God in silence, right? So now, we already talked about there is difficulty. You just see that in verses 3 and 4. It talks about uh, how long will you attack a man to batter him? He's like a leaning wall. Uh, they plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. He's going through some intense persecution. There are people who, to be frank, would like to see David dead, right? That is, that is a possibility. So there is difficulty, absolutely, but he expects salvation. The second part of verse 1 says, from him comes my salvation. Now, let's, let's be specific here for just a moment, okay? This is, my, this is the uh, classroom side of things, okay? When we see the word salvation, we often immediately gravitate to our eternal destiny. Uh, we absolutely, 100%, it is true that we have salvation in God. We, will, we have a relationship with him. He has forgiven our sins. We will be in heaven when we die. All of those things are true. We refer to that as salvation, absolutely. Uh, we have that, any, any individual who, is, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation has confidence in that eternal salvation. But David is not talking about eternal salvation here. He's talking about a very present salvation. God is not just the God of eternal salvation. That is true. God is also the God of immediate and present deliverance. Okay? And that's, for, for me, that's often difficult to, to think about because I often just think, well, this world is going to be terrible and, you know, I know that I will just know God did the right thing at the end and God will save me at the end and I'll glorify him Amen and amen. Well, it's true that, that those are theological truths. But there is also a reality that God does care about the here and now, and that he is in the process of delivering his people in the present. Now, that doesn't mean he promises. This isn't the health and wealth gospel where you, if you just have enough faith, God will deliver you every time and do everything that you want him to do. No, that's not what this is promising. But David does have confidence that in this scenario where he is being oppressed by these wicked men, that God will deliver him. 
Now, another observation is, okay, so, so God expect, or David expects salvation to come from God. And when we ask a further question about who is it that he expects salvation to come from and why, it's really interesting that he uses a, a defining term here, a, just so, so we know specifically who he's talking about. He says, God alone is the source of my salvation. And, you know, I, I think it's actually really helpful to go through this psalm and see that this is actually one of the themes of the psalm. It would be incorrect to say, it would be incorrect to say that, that David thinks God is going to be one of the sources of his salvation. And then he's also going to look for the sword in his right hand and also the, the chariot and the arrow. And no, David is not saying that he's going to get some aid from God, some aid from, you know, weapons of warfare, some aid, no, from his intellect. No, God alone. And you see that over and over. This same word is used, it's translated differently in, in a couple different places, but verse one, God alone is, is my soul waits. And then verse two, he, al- he only, same word, uh, you could translate it, he alone is my rock and my salvation, it's the same word. And then in verse five and six, he al- wait for God alone, he only is my rock. So those, even though they're translated slightly different, alone and only, they're the same word in Hebrew. And you can actually contrast that, interestingly enough, with those who are oppressing David. In, in verse 4, it says they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. In other words, while David is waiting for God alone and only God to be his salvation, the enemies of David, their only plan, their only desire is to see David fail. So there's a contrast there. There's a huge contrast, and it's it's a beautiful theme, and the reason, the big takeaway for this is the reason David has confidence in his salvation is not because he's wishing that it'll take place. It's not because he, you know, has confidence in his sword. He has confidence in God because of who God is, and and I don't know, let's let's illustrate this. Um, You know, I don't know, some people might appreciate football. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but I am planning on playing for the Vikings this upcoming season. How would your confidence be in me? I mean, would you be like, yeah, Vikings are going to go all the way to the top this year because some guy who has never played a minute of organized football is going to do something there. By the way, I'm going to be quarterback, so uh, be a very important position. But, you know, I'm, I'm just saying your confidence is not well-placed at all in me, right? And that's the point, is that one's confidence in an individual uh, in the circumstances in which you find them is directly related to their ability, right? And so God is, obviously, you, you think about how God is described and who he is as an individual. He is completely worthy of David's confidence. And so when you think about why David is so confident in Yahweh, in God, he, he is so confident in God because of who God is, not because of his circumstance. In other words, it, it wouldn't matter what David's circumstance was in particular, because God is superior to it all. God is powerful enough to deliver David from that. And so by way of application, obviously, even when, when we think about, wow, we're going through a tough time, but is it tougher than God could handle? 
Obviously not. Uh, or, you know, I, I just, I, I, I've never experienced something like this. But do you think God is surprised by that? Of course not. Of course not. Because of who God is, that is the source of David's confidence, and it can become the source of our confidence, right? Now, here's one of my favorite parts, is we also ask the question, how does David wait, right? So this is all in verse 1 here that we're talking about it. So he's waiting for the who, God alone. Uh, he's waiting uh, for salvation, for the what. He's waiting to be delivered from his, his difficulties. And how does he wait? In silence. Now, there are different kinds of silences. There's a, there's a, uh, like, there's, there's a silence when your team loses the championship. And, you know, this happens at every level, basically. You know, for whatever reason, you know, I'm thinking of like the World Series or, or championship uh, baseball, since I used to watch baseball all the time. You know, the, the, Two teams would have an epic struggle. One would win, one would lose. The losing team, for whatever reason, decides to just sit there in abject silence just watching the celebration on the field. And I think they do that to like motivate themselves to say, like, well, we got destroyed, but maybe next year we could celebrate this way or something like that. But they're just, they're not, you know, they're not cheering. They're not, you know, they're just watching in silence, the, the abject silence of defeat, right? We all, we all have seen something like that. Uh, but that's not the silence David is waiting for. This is the silence of the of the. This is the silence that's motivated from the absence of the need to contribute. Okay, this is the silence which Hannah observes in First Samuel one and two, after after Hannah comes and and begs God. She's childless. She's barren, and so she's struggling, and so she goes to to pray to God. She pours out her heart and soul, and then she's, she's done. She's silent. She sits. In fact, she gets accused of being drunk by Eli, which is kind of an interesting story, but, uh, because Eli, who's supposed to be the head of spirituality for Israel, is actually one of the most dense people there. And so he doesn't, he doesn't observe what's taking place. And yet Hannah's confidence is in God alone. And so after she pours out her soul to God, she is confident in him. In fact, in the psalm that she then recites in, in 1 Samuel 2, she actually says, using similar language, maybe, uh, it, I mean, you think about the, the overlap in themes, maybe she was reading the same texts of Deuteronomy and other passages that David himself was meditating on, because she says in 1 Samuel 2, there is no rock like our God in 1 Samuel 2. And notice what David goes into the very next place in verse 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. See, and this comes from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 32, Yahweh, and 33, is referred to as, as a rock. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is referred to as a rock. And I think when we think about how, how God is described here, these three descriptions are, are helpful. The rock is a picture of unchanging uh, of an unchanging foundation, of something that cannot be broken or, or shaken. Uh, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't admit this in front of my father, but uh, he, he used to allow me to mow the lawn when I was you know, younger. And uh, he warned me of a few things. Uh, one of the things he warned me of was don't hit rocks with lawnmowers. Uh, but, you know, I figured that I could go 
faster than he told me I could go. Like, you know, he's gone, you know, and when, when the, uh, what is it, when the fox is away, the chickens play. I don't know, something like that. Uh, but uh, I was mowing the lawn, you know, full speed ahead on the riding lawnmower, and you, you know, speed of light, so I couldn't really see much. But then, you know, I felt, you know, just the lawnmower deck hit something. And, you know, I was like, what in the world was that? And I looked back, and it was just massive rock. I blame my dog because our dog would carry around rocks all the time is a mental uh, disorder. But she, she enjoyed doing that, but she left all these mines around our yard. So, yes, needless to say, that was not a pleasant, in, uh, pleasant occurrence. And you would not be surprised when I told you that the lawnmower blade did nothing to the rock. It was vice versa, right? Uh, the lawnmower blades suffered at the hands of the, of the rock. And I think this is, this is just obvious knowledge to us. Rocks are, are durable, they're tough, they're unchanging. Weather, you know, you, you stick a rock out there and, you know, the weather comes, the heat, the winter, whatever, the rock's just going to stay there. It's just the rock, right? And there are a lot, I mean, your, your house uh, becomes deteriorated, you know, uh, the siding on your house falls off, your roof goes to, you know, trash, all of that. But the rock just would weather the storm, it stays a rock. And this is the picture of the God of our salvation, is he is our rock. He is a rock. He is unchanging. And it's also interesting that when, when David decides to personify God as salvation here, notice in verse 1 he said, from him comes my salvation. But then here he says, Yahweh is, uh, is my salvation. So it's not just salvation is coming from God. Yes, uh, salvation comes from God, absolutely. But here David says, you alone are my salvation. I, I don't look to anybody else. You are personified as salvation because you are the rock, because you are unchanging. And so I can have that confidence in you. And then he, he personifies God as my fortress, as my fortress. The idea here is the, is the, uh, the specific word that's used here is for the the citadel, the, the fortress that is, that is impregnable, it's on top of a hill. It's kind of, I mean, when I, when I think of this, I don't know if any of you are Lord of the Rings fans, uh, Minas Tirith, like the big mountain fortress that they go to, like this is, this is a massive fortress that just can't fall. And so any army that was going to oppose these kinds of cities knew that these, these cities could basically be only taken through some sort of espionage tactics, get in secretly, or you just have to do a prolonged siege and take it because you cannot take this fortress. And so David is saying, my God is a rock, he is my salvation, and he is my fortress. It's also important to emphasize there that he is per, he, he's personally attributing each of these. He's not just saying God is a rock, and he is a salvation, and he is a fortress. He's saying he is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. And because of that, because of who God is, because of who God is, I shall not be greatly shaken. And one of the things I think about when I read this, this line here, again, we draw back to the main, the main point of the, David's confidence is drawn on God's character, right? And we just have to beat that into our minds is that because of who God is, that's why David has this confidence, right? And that remains the same to us. If you, are, if, you are, if you are struggling in life, you're just really, really having a difficult time with your trials, your tribulations, getting a better picture of who God is, is the solution. 
Absolutely, it is the solution. And so David's, the outcome of this meditation for David is that I shall not greatly be shaken. Now, what, what I really like about that is that he will not greatly be shaken, but he's not saying that he won't be shaken. Meaning that it's not as if, it's not as if that he, he, he won't have to face this difficulty. It's not as if it's not, it's not hard. It's still hard. But knowing God's confidence will allow him to not be greatly shaken. And so David was obviously going through, you know, very difficult times. And we see more about that in verses 3 and 4. This is a part of his, his uh, confidence as well. In, it would be one thing, again, like I said, if, if, uh, if he was just sniffing the roses and life wasn't difficult, well, okay, fine. It's easy for, for us when life is going well to have a confidence in God. But what about when life is difficult? So this is a key component. He explains. So verse 3, he says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. In other words, he's saying, I've been beaten so much. I, I'm under so much oppression by you as, as, as these men are assaulting me that I'm like a leaning or a tottering fence. Uh, just a, last fall, actually, we were, we were hiking. The boys and I were hiking behind uh, our house in the woods, and there was, a, there was a fence that we were going by. And the fence was basically, you know, leaning over, dilapidated, what once stood for strength and protection, you know, stay out. I mean, basically, you just walk over it now, right? And that's the point. The picture here is, is David is saying, I'm suffering so much that where I should be strong and, and uh, full of vitality and life and vigor, I am like a fence that is no good. I'm, I'm broken down. I'm teetering. I'm, I'm leaning over. I'm, I'm not good for anything. I, it, it's a very sad picture of what once signified strength now signifies age and decrepit nature. All of that is being pictured here. And so David is saying, this is what I look like. And then he goes on to explain just how they, how they are intent on persecuting him. And this is what I mentioned earlier, is that they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. In other words, they, they don't have a, these people, these, these enemies of David, they don't have a business meeting where they say, okay, let's take agenda item number one. Let's, uh, let's go cause problems in Judah. Let's steal from first Judah national. Okay, and then let's do this. No, the only thing on the agenda item is how do we destroy David? That's the only thing that they're concerned with. So they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. But that's not it. Like these people are marked by a pleasure in falsehood. In, in other words, it's not as if these individuals just lie sometimes or when they get trapped. No, they actually delight in fabricating a scenario, in lying, in falsehood. And I think this is just another good reminder of the fact that we often, you know, we, we often assume too much goodness out of people. You know, people always say all the time, oh, man is naturally good. Man, well, okay, you read Bible, Romans 1, you read Psalm 14. Man is not uh, on his own good. Man is not good by nature. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 2, talk about the reality that man in his natural state is incapable of receiving the things of God and is incapable of even doing good things on their own. Now, they can, now I take a step back and want to say that it's not saying natural man can't do anything good, but doing those things 
are in themselves acts of wickedness because they're always done out of ill ill-reputed motivations. In other words, they're not doing that for the glory of God. They're doing it for their own pride, their own sin. So even the very good things that they do are done in sin, right? So, so it's uh, the phrase that theologians use is total depravity. And that doesn't mean that everyone is as completely evil as possible. It just means everything that they do is, compl- is touched by their depravity, right? So this is something David experiences, is something we need to be aware of, that the, there are evil people out there. And he goes on and says, listen, they, they say one thing, they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So they say one thing, uh, but they mean another. You know, here we have the prototypical, the first very mention of politicians in the Bible. I'm just kidding. Human beings, right? Everybody does that. Human beings are by nature deceivers, by their evil nature, by their sinful nature, they are deceivers, in the sense that they, they say things, but then they work to their own advantage. Uh, and that's just what David's going through here. And I know, because you're human, you have gone through this. You have seen people do this. But one of the ways that the Psalms operate is it's, the Psalms are written generically. Obviously, David's going through a very real scenario. But the reason that he's writing this down for us is not because you're, all, you're going to go through something exactly like David, but because you are going to go through difficulty. So even if you don't go through somebody who wants to see you die, even if you don't go through something who is just lying to your face, you will go through difficulty. You will go through the need for hope. And so the Psalms are written as a guideline to help us understand how do we navigate these scenarios. And so here's the key to the whole Psalm, beginning in verse 5, is this is David's exhortation to himself and to other believers who find themselves in a scenario of difficulty. So David's exhortation is this, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Now you might think, you might think to yourself, wait, we just read that in verse one. Well, you read similar words, but it's not the same thing. All right, what you actually read in verse 1 was what we call an indicative, a statement of fact that my soul waits for God alone, but this is actually a command. So we've moved out of the realm of statement of fact, theological statements, to now admonition or to application. So in other words, based on the fact that God is the source of salvation, then what is mandated upon you and me is wait in silence for God alone. And the explanation is there, because my hope is from him. In other words, we move now to this exhortation, based on everything we've talked about, we must trust in God alone for our salvation. And again, verse 6 is very similar. He only, again, the, the absolute, the, the entirety of our, of our hope and our salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. Now, here's where I like the progression because the phrase is, I shall not be shaken. And if you're paying attention, keeping score at home, you know that this is not the same phrase because the phrase earlier was, I shall not greatly be shaken. And so it's almost as if David is intentionally bringing us along here saying, listen, because we know God is is our salvation, we know that he is our ultimate hope, our expectation, our confidence of deliverance. We won't greatly be shaken, but 
when we take that into true application, when we apply this reality to ourselves, when we mandate that our soul actually wait for him in this confident silence, then we won't be shaken at all. And I, I think that's an intentional uh, progression in the psalm where he changes it up, uh, switching that way. And so the reason we wait on God, this is a big part, the command, but the reason that we wait on God is because of who he is. And I should make a note here too, that this is a very important practical application of just the Christian life is many, many, many times um, just understanding the principle of, of theology to, to application is, is pivotal to, to your own daily existence. What I mean by that is, is you know something is true and then you need to make yourself live like it. You need to, you need to apply that to life. Uh, Philippians 4.8 is a good example of that. When, when Paul writing to the Philippian church, he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, whatever things are good, meditate on these things, right? That's a command. Think on these things. In other words, there, there's a temptation to be anxious. There's a temptation to, to worry. There's a temptation to be discouraged. There's a temptation to be uh, overwhelmed by sorrow. Think about what is true. Think about what is right. Don't just let yourself go by emotion, but think about what is true. And that's what David is exemplifying here and commanding. You know, a great example of this, uh, there's a, you, um, well, actually, I, I guess I'll just throw it out there. One of the, a very impactful story that I heard uh, from MacArthur one time, um, I don't know if I heard this in a sermon or in an interview or whatever, but he was uh, talking about a very difficult scenario that he had gone through. Uh, he, his wife had gotten a, in a very, very bad car accident, and it was very questionable whether or not she would live. And so, uh, you know, MacArthur was, was there with his family, and, uh, and the daughter, who had been with the mother when they got in the car accident, she was actually fine, but the mother had, uh, Patricia is her name, she was, you know, really, you know, touch and go, like, this is, this is a very dangerous scenario. And the daughter was, by her own admission, like, I've heard her tell part of the story as well, uh, she was hysterical. Like, she, she was uncontrollable, like, oh, what's going to do? Like, you know, our mom, my mom's going to die, you know, like, all that. She was, and uh, she tells it, you know, laughing now, but she said, you know, my dad just grabbed me, like, in a hallway and, like, put me up against the wall and said, like, what do you believe? because you need to live like it. And, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, uh, MacArthur often gets the uh, uh, reputation of being very unkind and unloving. <laughs> but, uh, but she really did appreciate that as a loving act on his part. Because in that scenario, what, uh, what was being communicated is that you claim to believe that God is in control. You claim to believe that he is the source of our hope and salvation. But why are you living like you have no hope? Why are you living? And in fact, that's, that's uh, Paul's admonition to the Thessalonians in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, we, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, right? We, we can be sad about certain situations, absolutely. That's not unbiblical to be sad. It's, it's not God's plan for us to be emotionless, but we can't be ruled by our emotions, and so what David is talking about here is along that same line of thinking is that 
we, we must take control. We must think the right way. We must think in line with what is actually true. And so that's what David is encouraging us to do here, is that we, we change our mindset. We don't look at the circumstances and think to ourselves, well, this is difficult. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I, I, don't, I don't worry. I, I, this isn't going to work. There's no way out. No, what you do is you change your viewpoint. Instead of looking at the circumstances, which you can't see past, you look instead to the God who has dealt with far more complex circumstances in his existence. And we put our, our hope and trust in God. Now he goes on, he says, he only is my rock, my salvation, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, which is kind of an interesting idea. The, my glory there in the Old Testament discussion, and it feeds into the New Testament as well, One's glory, glory is the same word for, uh, for weight. So, so like not weighting, but like weight, like uh, you're, you take a scale weight kind of idea. So uh, glory is the reason you, you say like, you know, when, when, when Moses speaks to Yahweh and says, show me your glory, show me your glory. Glory is translated that way uh, but the idea is like weight because the weight of an individual is, is who they are as a person. So when Moses says, show me your glory, he's saying, show me who you really are. And so what David is saying here in, in light of that same kind of thinking is he's saying on God, pertaining to God, who God is, rests my salvation and who I am in the depth of my being. So in other words, who I am, my glory, my weight, my my personality, my, my personhood, that rests on God. I, I am in, encapsulated in him. My identity, to, to use New Testament phraseology, when Paul talks about this, he says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the idea of what is being talked about here. David is saying, on God rests my very existence he is, is, he is everything. He is my mighty rock. My refuge is God. So we see very clearly as, as we walk through this, there's, a, there's good reason to trust in God because of who he is. And so David concludes then with one final admonition in this exhortation section. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And here he makes very he makes absolute certain that you understand this isn't just about David. It's also about you. It's so David is going through this situation, he's reflecting on it personally, but then he says, "Listen, you're also going through things like this. Therefore, all you people trust in him at all times." In other words, this isn't just a Sunday thing. This isn't just, you know, uh, this isn't just something that you do Saturday, Sunday on the weekend or whatever, and then Monday through Friday, you just have to work on your own merit to try to uh, work your way out of these scenarios. This is an all-day thing. The Christian life, this is something that I wish people would be very clear on uh, when, when they give the gospel, but the Christian life isn't something that you're, you're not inviting somebody to try out a Sunday lifestyle. 
You're, invi you're inviting people to have a complete life makeover where God is in control of every day. And the great blessings that come with that is that God is your forever guardian. It's not as if God takes off uh, Monday through Friday either. He is your guardian every single day. Psalm 121 is very clear about that. And so there's a beautiful symmetry there. And so one of the aspects of when, one of the manifestations of our trust in God is just a, a vibrant prayer life. Look what he says. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. Pour out your heart. There's no more vivid display of trust in God than prayer. And I fall prey to this so much, uh, ashamedly so, uh, and I imagine that you do too. We, I'm a doer, and, and so whenever something needs to get done, I, I try to take action and do it, right? But there is, there is a tendency to, as human beings, to try to, over, to control things, to, to work out our own salvation, as it were, to, uh, to seize our circumstances, try to alleviate the trial, those kinds of things. And I'm not saying that we can't take proactive measures to do those things. But how ironic is it that a lot of times we bypass the number one resource we are given in direct communication and communion to God? Anyone want to like, I mean, I'm curious, anyone really feel like they pray enough? <laughs> I mean, if you do, that's probably, you probably struggle with pride then at that point. I don't know, it's a lose-lose. I gave you a terrible scenario. I think most of us would say, yeah, we should pray more. But what are we doing then to actually make that happen? Do we actually prioritize it? I mean, if, if I will say when, when I've gone through certain difficulties in life, prayer becomes a lot easier, doesn't it? Because you're just lost. You, you, you realize that you can't do anything. And so you pour out your heart to God. And you say, Lord, help me because I've tried it all. And I can't do one thing. And so this is, this is the, instead of being the last resort, this should be the first resort for believers in expressing our confidence in an all-powerful rock that God is. And so there is no more vivid display of trusting and having confidence in God than actually praying and asking him to intercede in our lives. Now, lastly, David concludes the psalm by giving a warning. So he's, throughout this psalm, he's been emphasizing that God alone is the source of our salvation. His character is, is really the foundation of our trust and our confidence. Amen and amen. Now in verses 9 through 12, he gives a warning. So this is David's warning to trust in nothing but God alone. Now, I, I will say just preemptively here, it, it's a sad reality, I think, that, that it, in many senses it's, it's easy for us to trust in God, but maybe not to trust in God alone. And I think that that's, that's the danger, is we become, in many ways, just like the syncretistic, idolatrous nation of Israel. And what I mean by syncretism is that's the way we refer to, they worshipped Yahweh, all well and good, but they also worshipped Baal. They also worshipped the Ashtoreth. They also worshipped, you fill in the blank. And so syncretism, they trusted in Yahweh, 
but they did not trust in Yahweh alone. And that was a disaster. And so we must trust in Yahweh alone. We must trust in God alone. And so here's how David puts it. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. So his first admonition here in verse 9 is don't trust people. So he says, those who are of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. This is, in other words, he's saying the people who are lowly, who don't have much to offer, well, they're just a breath. They're, they're vapor. They're, they're, they're passing. They're, they are uh, transient. There's, there's a temporality there that, and, and we've seen that in so many different, uh, you know, you put your confidence in somebody and they unexpectedly leave the state, leave the country, leave this life. You know, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of people who have gone through those kinds of experiences. But even the people who are in high authority, the people who are uh, in the government, they're the people who, are, who have money, they're people in the highest state, but they are also a delusion. In other words, there's a, there's a delusion that they could, they could help you because of their rich uh, lifestyle, because of their power, but they too are just human. And they too think that they can control things, but they find out that they can't. And so there's, there's, this, there's this lie. In fact, the word for delusion there, I should, should emphasize, the, the translation that I'm reading ESV here says delusion, but it is just the word for lie. In other words, uh, people of high estate are a lie. In other words, their wealth, their power, their grandeur, it looks good. It looks like it, it can actually control things, but it's not. It's a lie. And by the way, that's, I mean, how many, that is one of the biggest problems that we see in society today. And actually, you see it a lot in democracies in general, just honestly, uh, and we have a republic here in the United States, obviously, but when you think about where people put their hope, so many people are putting hope in getting a perfect government or a better government. Life would be so much better. But, I mean, I, I don't know if they just don't know the Bible or if they don't know history or both, probably both, uh, because the reality is you've had, there have been amazing, amazing like moral leaders who have not accomplished anything who've not done anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe a sad fact, but it is a fact. And there have been wicked people who've actually been used by God greatly. Uh, fill in the blank here, Cyrus, for one, in the Old Testament, right? Or Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you think of these individuals. God doesn't need a moral or a moral individual at the top in order to accomplish things. That's not where we put our hope at all. God is the one who, who can act and work and he will never fail. But when we put our hope and trust in human beings, whether they are in a, in a power uh, situation with government or authority, or whether they're rich and they have money to help alleviate the burdens of life, those are a lie. I mean, just uh, so, there's so many examples of that, that being true. Uh, I feel like you know, we just go on forever talking about that. But David is clear that if you put your hope in humanity, you will you will be disappointed. And then he goes on in verse 10. So, so putting, putting your hope in humanity is obviously incorrect. Verse 10 is don't put your trust in specifically wealth. 
Notice how he talks about this. Uh, put no trust in extortion. Extortion would be the power to get wealth. So, so you're you know, part of the mafia or whatever. Maybe you, maybe you enjoy that and you, you uh, can force people to do what you want. Don't put trust in that. Set no vain hopes on robbery. In other words, even if you could rob somebody of their wealth and get away with it and just say, no, look, at I have all this, all of this money. Don't, don't set your hope in that. And even if riches increase, and notice how he leaves it ambiguous here. The point, the first two are sinful, robbery and extortion. That's sin. So even if you, if you pursue wealth in, in sinful ways, don't take confidence in your wealth there. But he leaves it ambiguous, just saying, even if your riches increase, don't set your heart on them. And how many people have experienced that with the rising and falling of stock market crashes? You have uh, business ventures, which in every sense should have succeeded and they fail. You have people who, although they have all this money, they find out that there are problems that money can't alleviate. And so don't set your heart on the uncertainty of riches. In fact, Paul actually gives that admonition to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, remind those who are rich among you not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches and that it, riches become a snare. And so it's not that it's, it's sinful to be rich, but don't set your hope on riches, on money. So don't put, David's warning is, is twofold. Don't trust in people. Don't trust in riches but what was his exhortation? Trust in God alone, because he's the only one, character-wise and power-wise, who can actually help. Now, in conclusion to the psalm here, tying it in, in verses 11 and 12, he gives just a, a beautiful segue here. He says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. Now, that's, a, that's just a poetic way of saying, this is very important. Listen to what I'm saying. Once I've said this, twice I've spoken, Kind of like how we talk about, uh, this is the last time I'm going to tell you. You know, it's just like, this is really important. Uh, once I've spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. And isn't that, that's exactly what we hear throughout Old and New Testament. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament in particular is in Daniel 4. And in Daniel 4 verse 25, God says to Nebuchadnezzar, you will be driven out from among men like a beast you will be caused to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. All right, wow. In essence, he's saying, yeah, you are the most powerful leader in the world at this time, Nebuchadnezzar, but you're going to be like a dog. You're going to go out, play with the other animals. Have fun. <laughs> Until you learn the lesson that I'm the one who gives kingdoms however I want. And so, so too, David tells us here, power belongs to God and God alone. It is now what Jesus told to Pontius Pilate. Uh, he said, you would have no authority unless God had given it. Then verse 12, he says, power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Now, that, that word steadfast love is the famous Hebrew concept, chesed. It's the, it's the covenant loyalty. In other words, God is being pictured 
here, God, God is being described as being faithful to his promises, faithful to what he has, he has covenanted with his people. And so David is rehashing that, recounting that, saying power belongs to God and to you belongs this covenant loyalty and you will render to a man according to his work. And that's the, that's, I, I love the fact that the psalm ends this way because in a psalm about hope, about how we can have confident expectation that God is not a deistic God, he's not just uh, apart from life, but he's, he's with us and he's going to uh, guide us through life and deliver us if that is his will. And by the way, if it's not his will, you'll just die, okay? So there's that. So he will deliver you until you're ready to be delivered to home. So it is his promise to take care of you. He has promised to do that until, it's in, until he is fulfilling his promise to take you home to him. So that, that, is, that is difficult for us as we're going through life to say, well, but what about those that are doing wrong? And David lets us know, as we see in plenty of scriptures, that God will render a man according to his work. In other words, God will judge. God will judge. And that's such an important powerful theme to think through is that God doesn't just say, well, I wish I could interact with those humans over there, but I'm busy over here. No, God accounts everything and he will give, he will give recompense for the actions that man have done. So when we think about this, this is why believers have hope. We, we see that we have a confidence in God because of who God he because of who God is. And that's really the only reason we have confidence. And that also bespeaks to the reason why we have confidence in God alone and not God plus something. Right? And this ultimately is expressed through salvation. Absolutely. We profess through faith our confidence that when we die, because we have put faith in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. That is absolutely 100% the case. Uh, if you have put your faith in Christ, that is true. But it also goes beyond that. Our lives are not just mythical spiritual existences. They have a present here and now. And David was going through some real trials in his life. And you and I will go through real trials in life. And we don't just need to think to ourselves, well, God is the God of my salvation in the future when I die and I'll go to heaven, so I guess I'll try to survive. No, God is also the God of the here and now. God is the God of present, not just promised salvation. He's not left us orphans. He will return and make things right ultimately, yes, but he's also working in the here and now. And so that's why we can say, I wait for God, not just to return, and he will return, but we can also say, I wait for God to help now. And that's such an encouragement. Our hope is in him. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this psalm. Psalm 62 is a, an amazing rehash of the reason we can have confidence and hope in you. I pray that this message would encourage us when we go through difficulties, that it would give our weary souls life that we would turn to you in the midst of difficulties, in trials, tribulations, that we would love you, that we would, that we would also cast aside any false, false assurances, that we would not take confidence in our own action, 
but that we would put our trust and hope completely in you and you alone. So, Lord, please make that the case for your honor and glory. Amen. thinking of this while Peter was preaching, but there is a song that goes directly with that passage. Anybody remember that song? All right, I'm going to find it for us, and we're going to sing it as we leave. Is that all right with you? got to get this song. It's so good. It would be a perfect ending to this this morning's service. I'm going to go like this. See it better. It's called, O oh Lord, My Rock and My Redeemer. I got the song now, though. Now we're all set. Maybe we remember it. Do you remember it? Well, we'll listen to it then if we can't have it up on the screen. Should be playing.
Yeah. 